Everyone's story is different about how they became a founder. And my guest today is Andy Bartlett and his is no different. He's the founder of Rome and that's an app that gives you access to local knowledge in any location. But what's amazing about it is that it got 3 million views in just its first week. So it's no surprise that he came out of the gate strong because he knows a thing or two about going fast because he used to be a professional jockey. Now, in this episode, we talk about amazing things, about building resilience, about taking the lessons you had when you were growing up and using them to fuel you when you become a founder. But just as a warning, there are some screamish stories in here about injuries. So if you do have a soft stomach, I would turn it. So most people, when they start their career, it's a fairly linear route. It might have some bumps, but it's like, I went to primary school, yes, secondary school, college, university, got a job, didn't like my job, then became a founder. Okay, that's a pretty standard route. But yours was different almost from the very beginning, wasn't it? So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I mean, I did go to a primary school. I did go to a secondary school. Um, but my, I, was, I grew up in an environment that was very unique. Uh, Due to my family background so my dad set up a company um at the age of 24 um which was basically residential care homes for kids but then based around an agricultural farm and therapy through animals so it's quite a quite a strange one right it's it's not something that you come across every day but again those kids come from the most underprivileged backgrounds that you could possibly imagine from across the you know across the country um so they come to us and they would basically get allocated into a house every house has a team acts like a family, but then they also go to this sort of school that we have. Um, well, they still learn maths, English, and all the basics, right? But then it takes them a step further. And it's, it's about getting sort of more hands-on, learning skill sets. Uh, they're with us from the ages of 8 to maybe 18. But then by the time they get to 18, you know, from, from 16 to 18, they are prepped to leave. So by the time they leave, they'll have a house, they'll have a job to go into, and then it's just a case of them kind of keeping that ball rolling once they leave. Wow. I mean, mm. what a great like setup. So you, you've learned, you've been learning a lot of graft, like early doors there. Oh yeah, massively so from, you know, being looking out stables and all sorts from, from tiny little boys. So. Amazing. And so you, um, and this kind of gets to like the, 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 the first, first stage of your interesting story. Mm. You, um, you found out that you're pretty good at riding horses. Yeah, so again, therapy through animals. I mean, if you look at horses, they're so uh, emotionally intelligent. And again, it kind of goes back into my dad's background. He lost both his parents when he was 20, didn't really have much to do. So he's like total inspiration uh, as to rags to riches. So say riches, I mean, he does all right, right? Um, but again, it's, that, it's that, that he identified very early on through his own sort of life uh, in that moment after he lost both of his parents at a very young age of this how uh, how emotionally intelligent horses are and then he ended up going on to teach at some of these sort of uh, unique schools that in his opinion weren't kind of doing it quite to the max you know so then he set up his own and thought therapy through animals kids in care this just makes so much sense when you see it you know mm -hmm. when you see the sort of magic happen and uh you see how calm kids become and how collected they become uh and then also the the what am I trying to say? They they the lift in the in in themselves. The you know when they get the confidence from being able to ride a horse or you know do well. It's 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 just incredible. Yeah, and um, you had a particular affinity towards it. Yeah, so I mean through that I obviously grew up riding horses, um, yeah. and then like anything else, you uh, you build up a network around what you do, right? So I got to 
14 years old and through riding I got my network sort of dabbled into the horse racing scene and I got off, offered a job at 14 to sort of come and exercise some racehorses and it just built from there. What, help me out. So what does that mean when you say exercise some racehorses? So well, the, the, you gotta tell, I know nothing about this world and I'm fascinated. Yeah, so what does that mean? So exercise, I, you know, these racehorses, they are professional athletes themselves. Um, so there is routines. There is marks that you have to, to keep them up to work and make sure that they're fit. You know, it's um, just as much goes into getting a really good racehorse fit uh, as you would trying to run 100 meters in the Olympics. Yeah, um, wow. So much science behind it. That's something you I don't really consider it. You mm. just sort of be like, yeah, this guy's really fast. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great breeding. Let's get him out there. Let's go and do mm. it. And so, and then you, you became a jockey yourself, right? Yes, I got my license at 16. What does that mean to... Okay. So, so believe yeah. it or not, there's actually two schools across the country, one in Newmarket and one in Doncaster, which is like a racing college where you have to go to do courses. You learn about nutrition and exercise, you know, all kinds of different stuff. And you have to pass a course to be able to get your license. It's a bit like going and applying for your driver's license. Right, fine. You're just kind of driving something else instead. Nice. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. And so you, and you started racing. You, um, I mean, oh, look, you know... You, Anyone does their research and you knows it went pretty well. And you got you got scouted pretty much your first race. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I got very again through that network. I um I got offered a very random opportunity. By the way, I never wanted to be a jockey. By the way, uh, it was never really part of my plan. I was thought I, I think I was entrepreneur first, and then opportunity with racing came. Right? Okay. So at the age of fifteen, sixteen, I got offered an opportunity through my network to just ride in a race. It was a, like an amateur race and. It looked fun, so I was like, "Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's 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 explore that." And then I ended up coming second, which was really not expected. Yeah. And then back in them days, there was no such thing as GDPR. So I I go back to the uh, secretaries, um, the waiting room, if you like, where you get changed and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there was a like a note for me. Uh, basically, um, the secretary handed out my number to a guy called Alan Swimbank, who at the time dead now bless him but um at the time one of the world's most renowned racehorse trainers in the in the world you know he's, he's flown all over the world racing horses winning millions and millions millions so uh he see me race and again he was just there random i mean this was an amateur race he wouldn't usually be at amateur races he's usually but i think he just had a lookout with his mates that kind of thing very random um saw me and knew that i lived sort of close to him um and he he got my number email all that kind of stuff from the secretary and rang me up pretty much a couple of hours afterwards and said, I've got an uh, opportunity here for you if you like. Uh, you can start on Monday. And I was 16 and I was thinking, I'd just applied for A-levels and I was doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, thought, actually, why don't I uh, just get to work? Just get down to just it. Just get down to it. Because yeah. I, I never really, I was never one for the classroom. Never, ever. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're surrounded by so many like worthwhile distractions, why mm. would you be, right? Yeah. yeah, that's great. And so you, um, and you became pro. As a as a as a yeah. as a jockey. Now look, I I know literally nothing about what it takes to be a professional jockey. Yeah. And the naive part of me is like, surely you're just sitting on a horse. Yeah, yeah of course. But yeah. I imagine it's an incredibly technical and a very physical. Yeah. So to... I'll give you a quick example, right? I started work on the Monday. My boss gave me three weeks to get down to nine stone. So I, I was I came out because I went through like I played rugby as a kid and all that kind of stuff. As a 16-year-old, I was weighing 11 and a half. So at 16, you're being asked to cut two stone? Mm-hmm. In three weeks. Woof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
that was one of the most pinnacle moments of my life. So I did it three weeks. I cut down. I wasn't drinking water. I would have maybe an apple between 6 a.m. And, and, and lunch. I'd then go to sleep in the afternoon so you didn't eat. Uh, and then you go back and you graft for another couple of hours. And then you go to sleep, right? Um, so there's so much structure. There's so much discipline. And when I did that, I mean, I rode. It was at Doncaster, actually. I rode a race at Doncaster. Didn't do very well because I basically, you know, I got on the horse, I was shaking because yeah. there was just nothing in me. There was nothing. I remember having a cup of tea just before I jumped on and I had about 10 cups of sugar, 10 teaspoons full of sugar. And I don't drink sugar or, you know, tea with sugar in usually. But I just needed the energy because I had none in me, you know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, point being is I cut down all that weight in three weeks. And then after that, I was like, I can do anything anything I want I can do because that just took every ounce of me mm, yeah I love that I love that and you kept and so you kept out the game for for how long about six years six seasons six S years yeah six years and so how many just just so I understand it like because I think it's fascinating the the correlation between being an entrepreneur or slash founder and being an athlete because you've only really got yourself to turn to like you right. know that's it you like you know if you're not putting the time in the gym you're not going to get you're not you're not going to win mm. and in the same way as found if you don't put the time in you're not going to win you know this is the way it works right yeah. and um burnout as an athlete is the same as as founder yeah there's all these factors that can affect you yeah. and so when you were that six years so what you're a full-time professional athlete so what, what kind no, of... Not, the... not for the full six. So there, right. there's, a, there's a, a ladder that you have to climb there. So right. I climbed the ladder as a, an amateur and then went conditional. Um, rode a couple of races as a professional. Um, had a couple of winners. Um, and then I actually stepped more into the training and hospitality side of things. Okay. As well as racing. Um, so I ended up developing a really good relationship with my boss. And I think he must have seen something in me. Yeah. To kind of put it plain and simple because he had me as his assistant trainer from being about 17 years old. Wow. Yeah, which wow. is sort of unspoke of That's uh, amazing. in that world. Um, so I was his number two from being about 17. And then um, he would, you know, I'd be driving his, his clients, his, his owners to races, spending the weekends with them, all that kind of stuff in different parts of the country all the time. Um, which again was really useful in my career because, you know, throughout this process, I, um, I'm learning how to graft, graft hard, right? I'm learning all kinds of different skill sets that I still apply today. Um, but one thing from that, uh, moving into that scenario was it allowed me to build up a network of relatively wealthy people, mm. you know, to own a horse in racing, they've got to have done all right. So. Well, how much does that cost to own a horse in racing? Depends. You know, you've got such a, there's such a spectrum of it. You know, you've got your, your less good, less well-known uh, trainers, but then you've got your world-class trainers. And, you know, it can be anywhere from a couple, you know, maybe a thousand pound a week to three thousand pound a week, maybe upwards. So that's interesting because because that's yeah. probably going to be discretionary spend as well, mm. right? So these are affluent individuals because it's unlikely, you know, the most of these people you meet who own, they're probably like they probably had they're successful in another area of their life, mm. and then they decide to do this as you a see. Quite a lot of people do it for the corporate experience. So you know, um, company owners creating syndicates to be able to take their staff for days of the racing yeah you know it's a great day out mm. where were you based so i was based in uh, scotch corner for quite a long time um which is near darlington not too far from newcastle yeah about an hour south from newcastle uh, and then i moved to leeds for another trainer for a time 
um, lived in a little place called Otley. Um, now I moved back further north uh, near a place called Redcliffe. And then I moved back home after that and yeah. uh, moved into my own place, which so what, was Darlington again. Darlington again. So what, what was it about? So you, you're there and you've, you've had this experience in this graft and you've changed roles when you've been in there, but you moved away from it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what gave you that, the, the, I mean, you know, I call it the itch. There's something where you're, you're sitting in a business or whatever industry and you get an itch. Do you want to look and try something else? What turned your head? Uh, I actually got to a point, and again, I'm young, so I'm thinking, like, where do I see my life going? How am I doing this in five years' time? Also, not to mention, I had a number of injuries. So you're talking to a bloke that's broke his both legs, both arms, nose a couple of times, done a few vertebrae in his back. From you know, coming off the horse? Um, not all of them. Um, I've always been quite an adventurous sort of uh, individual that likes to right. get his blood up. Um, Quite a number of them were from racing, but when I was 14, I also got run over by a van biking home from work, which was right. interesting. Yeah, so, and I was in hospital for a little while with that. Um, I can imagine. Mm, yeah, yeah, so, you know, I've had chance to kind of had my legs up and quite a lot of time to yourself. As you know, being a founder, you do spend a lot of time to yourself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that happened to me very early. You know, I literally had six months out on the couch doing not a lot, Yeah. you know. Jeez. Turning to YouTube, what can I teach myself, you know? Yeah, yeah. All that kind of stuff. So I actually taught myself a very basic level of code okay. during this period. Um, and uh, I just loved it. You know, I always thought tech was something I wanted to get involved in. And I thought if I don't do it now, and I was 20 at the time, then I probably won't ever do it. And I'll probably just end up sticking in racing because racing, the industry is such a small world if you like it's a, a small community it's very hard to get out of very institu institutionalized mm. uh you get a lot of people from the military actually going into racing because it's there's so many sort of parallels if you, you know, very strangely so you know you may not believe that straight off the cuff but uh you know it, it's a very strange world to be in um but i basically um i just went all in i said right don't see myself doing this five years let's go do something else and i stopped I I love that. So it's circling back a little bit there. So when you were when you're on that time and you're injured and you're on the sofa, like and you were doing that that home research, fascinating to know that now you are a founder and now you're running a business. What was what was the valuable stuff that you learned during that period? Because a lot of people who sit down, they're like they're consuming loads of content. Yeah. What actually became transferable and valuable? Do you know something that was really difficult for me um, was the racing world is such a fast-paced industry. It is 110 mile an hour in every single direction. Um, and then when I moved into business, I thought it'd be very similar. I thought, you know, you watch the movies and you talk to people and I thought, makes a lot of sense. Me, you know, I thought business would be a very fast-moving industry. Mm. But actually, compared to racing, it's not. It's very slow. You know, it's very slow indeed. Um, and um, number, you know, resilience i think is the key thing that i could take away to this point right now especially in my industry um I, for you guys watching i don't you know, i haven't really dived into what what i do at the moment what i founded but it is a very difficult market to get into because there's a b2b element and then a b2c element so you've got two phases to the company and resilience is is you know something that is, is very apparent and do you think being a being an athlete before you built that resilience from there because yeah, you know, like how many races did you win? Uh, 10. How many races yeah. did you race? 
couple of hundred maybe. Do you know what I mean? You yeah. Know? So like, you know, your failure rate's really high, but you're yeah. still successful. I was always top four, you know. Yeah. I was never anyway. But it's, but that's the thing, right? Yeah. So you're 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 constantly dealing with an element of failure. Yeah. All the yeah. time. Like you're having to deal with that. And I think there's something in you know, being an athlete or being involved in sport at any level, dealing with that constant failure. 100%. But then knowing that actually if I put the graft in, I might be able to get better. That's basically what being a founder is every day because you're always dealing with failure. Totally. Yeah. Uh, you know, you learn by failure. I mean, that, that's another thing that a huge takeaway is, is the best way. For me personally, maybe not for everyone, but for me, I learn so much faster by failure. Mm. Sounds mad, but uh, yeah. And I think, I think again, another, another thing to talk about is, is this ability to pivot very quickly. If you see something not working, how do you change it? How do you make it work? Yeah. So how, so what did you so how did you decide to do what you're doing now? What made you choose that? So the story continues. So again, I was racing and doing the corporate sub experiences up and down the UK, all over the place. Um, so what Rome is, Rome local, R O A M for those those watching, um, is in its simplest form a destination application, uh, de destination software. It's like TripAdvisor, but rather than reviews, it's all friend recommendations. And you create plans and all that kind of stuff, and it's more sort of community orientated. Okay, um, so those experiences that I had racing up and down the country, uh, you know, a strapline for the company has become a local in any location. I was taking owners all over the place um, and landing in Liverpool, Haydock, you know, Edinburgh, wherever. And it was a case of like, I need to entertain. What is there around me? You turn to Google and you, you know, things to do around me, and it's. It's, you know, your Costa Coffees and McDonald's and all these big ad spend companies at the top. And it's, it's uh, you know, page five, six, seven, by the time you get to, okay, there's a nice cafe around the corner. Um, do you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so, so, so for me, it was a case of how can we make this easier? And also how can I get a much more localized cultural feel to this experience that I'm trying to provide for my, for my, uh, you know, my clients in a sense. Um, so Rome pinpoints your location. And it pulls up everything around you within a 10 minute wonder, locally focused too. Don't get me wrong, there are the likes of McDonald's on there in areas because some are chains and things, but we have a huge local focus. So, independent retailers, hospitality, leisure, cultural uh, activities, all that kind of stuff. Um, pinpoint your location, pulls up everything within a 10 minute radius around you. That's a wonder. As you wonder, it continues to change and filter. Um, so, that was kind of where there's a problem. How can I solve it for myself? And that's all it was to begin with. How can I solve this problem for myself? Build a little bit of a code base that can tell me where everything is right now, instantly. Uh, and then that evolved into my racing uh, friends and things. Like, right, we're in Haydock. Where do you want to stay? Well, here's a plan. You know, I, I, this is where I recommend. This is where I stayed last time. It was great. And it wasn't a Premier Inn and it wasn't a whatever. It was a, a nice little local mm. hotspot. Love it. Um, that kind of thing. And then on the flip side, Rome has two phases, as I mentioned earlier. It's got B2B and B2C, so the consumer side I've just explained. But for the businesses, it was a case of, okay, if I'm going to be driving people to these places, how can I get them to kind of say, hey, look at me, and this is what I do, and this is what we do great. Uh, so we brought out some business tools and things like that too, which we're starting to roll out in Northern Ireland and other areas. I love that. And so look, you've got, that's really interesting because you've approached it like your journey is a classic. I said that every business starts with one or two 
um, statements. Wouldn't it be cool if, or wouldn't it be better? Yes, if? Yeah. yeah. Mm. And so you've literally gone in there and you've been like, Hey, wouldn't it be better if I actually knew where to take people. Yeah. Let me go and solve that problem. And yeah. I love that entrepreneurial mindset. And so you, you feel something really cool there. In the current climate, marketing is hard, but do you know what isn't hard? making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. When you've done that, like, but you've got quite a big task in front of you, right? Because oh, yeah. that, that's not a... That's not a no-code product you're building there. Right? Mm. You've got to build something. You can't just take something else and reskin it. Yeah. You've got to build a lot of relationships. It's probably a ton of metadata. It's it's a complicated thing to solve. So when you started, that's just you. Yeah. Right? So what did you do? So again, you, you had someone on the podcast, I forget the name now, and it was all about um, basically entering an industry that you had no clue about. Aliche, yeah. Yeah, shout it's out. One of my portfolio. Please okay. feel free to shout out to her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Again, you know, very similar. I was stepping into an industry that I had no idea. To be honest, other than my racing network, I didn't really have the network to build this either. So I knew from the moment I started that this is going to be a long process because I have to build everything from the ground up, everything. And, you know, lay those foundations deep, um, build that network uh, to be able to get into reductions um, and, and be able to build it up, build, build, build. Um, so again, I, like say, I say, Something as a kid, I think again going back to my my environment growing up of this this extended family of, of twenty you know twenty four kids at any given time, and there's about you know thousands of them over the years. One thing that I can say from being a very young man or even a young boy is that I've been very self aware. You know the the values that have sort of been embedded into me in terms of leading by example for these guys and girls and all that kind of stuff has definitely led into you know me being able to sort of plan way way in advance uh, so again from from i started rowing when i was 19 okay wow and i knew that it was probably going to be about five years before i could even launch it but just because of where my financials were and my skill set and the fact that i knew that i had to build the network so again i went into rome knowing that before i even get this sort of launch it's going to be about five years from now um so i just set out and build 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 actually i had to set up another company to help me keep going wow so you were funding it through other work Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, again, racing as a semi-professional and then professional uh, jockey, um, it's like, you, you know, being so young as well, you do make a lot of money. Yeah. You know, so again, it's something that, that really grounded me from the word, uh, from, from, from being so young and, and to where I am now, is, is growing up in this environment that I told you about with all the kids and this, this, um, this uh, school, uh, but then also seeing such privilege you know, from making my own money, but also going or traveling around the UK with all these different types of people that have been successful in their own rights, right? Yeah, great. Really great way to just like absorb that magic. Yeah. And so when you had, so what was the inflection point? What was the point in which you decided, right, okay, I'm going all in on Rome. When did you decide that this was going to be the number one gig for you? Mm, 20 years, 20 year old probably. About R- rather time like what was the what was the point that made you decide it was right what what did you have evidence that it was going to work out or were you still going pre-revenue blind faith like what were no, you no 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 so during again during my time racing and everything like I, on the road a lot and I, I'm a quite a talkative person when you get to get going and yeah. uh, I'm always talking and, and seeing and, and 
you know, I was doing a lot of R&D even when I was just racing. So I went into it with quite a good idea of this is a problem. I have an idea for a solution. Let's go out and do it. Let's go out and deliver it. Um, again, there's nothing out there like it. So, uh, and again, Rome is very unique in the, in the environment and the, the ecosystem that we've created being so user focused, but then business focused. And there is a social element to it. So it's a social platform and, you know, it's, and you build and build and build, right? Yeah, no, I love that. You launched recently, but you had some really great success when you launched. You had really great exposure. So tell me a bit more about that and how you got it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I launched Rome Local three months before COVID, more on the B2C side to help people find, you know, local places to visit and all that kind of stuff. During COVID, I also, we, we did launch the business features um, where basically businesses can claim their already existing profile in Rome. And we're already promoting over like 1.5 million hotspots across the UK. They're already listed and they can claim their profile and that effectively acts as their own app where they can, again, you know, if it's a restaurant, upload news, off events, deals, discounts, all that kind of stuff for the public to see. Um, we just launched in Northern Ireland recently and in the first week we had 3.8 million hits. Wow. So wait, okay, so a couple of things there. So why did you choose, two questions there. First of all, why did you choose Northern Ireland of all places? Yeah. First question. Second question, what did you, what mechanisms did you use to get those hits? Uh, okay, so start with the why Northern Ireland. Um, to be honest, I went over a couple of months beforehand just to scout out through a connection. Um, and I fell in love with, the place as an opportunity you know if you look to northern ireland there's so much inv inward investment from central government lots of uh you know businesses investing into northern ireland too it's kind of like a land of opportunity at the moment where they kind of put the past behind them and it's to the future right um so i went over visited and northern ireland if you if you've ever been such a microcosm everyone seems to know everybody and if you don't know someone you know your cousin might or whatever um and it just seemed like the prime place to kind of launch all of this in one place on what we view as is like our first national launch approach of how we're going to launch this nationally wherever we go. Okay. So, um, and how we do that again is very, very, so we, we would launch the consumer side first and then four weeks later we launched the business side. So on the consumer side for the general public to download Rome local and start, you know, using its social abilities and finding places. Um, we launched that um, uh, last month and um, it just blew up through press releases and we did a few like billboard advertising and, you know, just general marketing really, you know, uh, and so, advertising. So when you look at that, so you've used all these different areas to try and gain traction. Yeah. What, what for you was the, the, the best investment of your, of your money? Where did you get the best return, do you think? Okay, so definitely into video content uh backing that with good pr relationships so how did you so the video content what kind of stuff were you creating um so yeah if you go to roamlocal.co.uk you'll see it um it's just a general sort of explainer video where i'm kind of walking down the street and kind of talking about it into a into the camera that did amazing um like seriously well for some reason do you know what it is with me and i get told this a lot i'm just quite authentic Sure. And then when, when that kind of gets put onto video, and I'm talking about, you know, we boosted this business's profits by 30% in four weeks and uh, using the tools that we provided them. And, you know, the community has had over, 
half a million impressions of local people looking for local products and all that kind of stuff like it's just authentic right and, and yeah and and back that with some good pr publicity and you know it just seemed to have worked i love that and so you just got you got a production company to come down and do it for yeah. you and welcome you. That's a really great way to do it. I yeah. think it's it's really good to get that face behind there. And then I think talk about errors that I made. Yeah, very quickly. I'd, I'd love um, to. So in the early days, like I'm quite a reserved person, quite a quite a private individual too, in honesty. Um, so in the very early days, I didn't really. I want like Rome local, the brand, the face, the the lion icon that we have, um, to be the face. You know. And then it took me a little while to realize that actually, no, like all the best brands need sort of their mission, vision and values coming, coming through their brand face. And that needs mm -hmm. to be backed up by a authentic approach by the person that's bringing those values to, to life uh, through what, you know, the work that they do. Uh, so early days talking about things that I definitely did wrong was not appreciate that actually you know, brands need a face as well. Yeah. Or at least my brand does anyway. I think it really does. And I think, look, early on in any business, you're ultimately like, you, you have three customers. You have you know, your, all those partners you're talking about, the B2B mm. side. You've got those partners. You've got your consumers. But you've also got investors and shareholders yeah. and employees and so forth. And you're going to try and attract great talent, great investors. And, and they want to know that there is someone behind there that they, that they believe in. Definitely. And it, it really is, the, I think... Yeah, a lot of startups and founders really misjudge the value of personal brand. Definitely. Really... But you see people coming through now, though, like uh, the younger generations, where it's just so natural for them to create these sort of yeah. personal brands. And it's like, for me, I find that really difficult to be, you, know, you, you like the post that I put on today about coming down here today. I never usually do that kind of stuff. But um, I'm developing those skills now where actually, I, I, you know, it's good to do that because it shows people what you're up to and, 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 and that you're out there trying to make a difference. I think it's great. I think your attitude there is really good as well. Look, I am. Um, uh, I hate it. I actually mm. hate the person. People wouldn't believe that, but yeah. I. I hate you're the person. Quite good at it though. I. Well, I work hard at it. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? I, and I realize the value of it because I didn't have a personal brand for such a long time, and um, and it's one of those things where you can't build it overnight. Mm. You have to do a little bit over a long period of time, and, and you you won't see the return straight away. And I think as a founder too, you know, you got so much going on. Like it's kind of put to the bottom of the list every time. Yeah. Okay. It really is. You know, I've tried, you know, I'm definitely getting better at it now. It's something that I've been like, uh, something that I've been working on for some time, but at the same time as a founder, you know, you've got so much going on. You, you're in every part of the business, aren't you? And it's, it's, I sometimes look at those people that are really good and think, how do you have the time to do it? But, uh, you know, it's part of, it's part of the, it's part of what they need to do. Isn't it, it really is. And I think also like doing, you're always, as a founder, you're always worrying about scalable things. You're always like worrying about how do I scale something really quickly? How do I reduce my cost per acquisition? How do I build a product that I can sell a thousand times but only build once? And the truth is with personal brand, it doesn't work like that. Mm. You, know, you, you don't scale it. Yeah. But what you do is you get better opportunities. So when you first start out um, you know, with a personal brand, you get invited on to podcasts with three listeners you know and you have to do it and you know no one's going to notice it but over time you build up and mm. then you know it's the ten thousands a hundred thousand you start to get the bigger ones you Definitely, don't yeah. you, you get invited to events and there's like there's no one there and all of a sudden you're being asked to to speak at a big event with thousands of people there like it just it does scale but you you have to commit to it and it will only pay off if you commit to it yeah.
I'm fascinated by the mindset of anybody who is elite at anything. Mm -hmm. I am, whether it be golf, whether it be poetry, okay, maybe not poetry, whether it be, but there's so many things. Like if you're elite at anything, if you dedicated your life to one single pursuit, fuck me, I'm impressed. I think it's amazing. and I love hearing about it. And when I was reading about you and you were like, and I was reading like, this guy is a professional jockey. And my, look, and I said to you before, my instant reaction is you're sitting on a horse and you do it. But I've, I've ridden a horse, okay? Yeah. And it's hard fucking work, yeah. okay? And if you've got this like 300 kilogram <laughs> machine, like just running as fast as it can, yeah. like, and you've got to hold on fucking tight to that thing. Yeah. Like you must have quite a serious physical regimen that you're having to go through mm-hmm. but i'm fascinated to know what kind of training do you fucking do because you're not doing deadlifts and pull-ups all oh, right okay so um to be honest most of the training is in the yard just exercising horses um your so my day-to-day routine was i'd wake up at get there for six in the morning i maybe ride 12 horses a day but then during those 12 different horses that i'd be riding every day um i would just be trying to get in as many steps as i possibly could so for example You've got a big gallop, which is what you would go which may be a mile long. Yeah, sorry. About a mile long. Um, and what I would do is I would jump off the horse at the top, walk it down, jump back on, gallop it up, jump off, walk it down, jump back on, gallop it up. And you do that three times per horse. It's a lot it's of just, steps. It's just literally trying to get as many steps in as possible. Yeah. Um, additionally, I would run with bin bags on and not just bin bags, so bin bag first and then tracky bottoms, big woolly socks, hat hoodie pull it in um run just as far as i could until my legs gave out really like i'm talking you don't have so when you're so weight orientated and and horse racing is uh, a lot of people get this wrong like everyone thinks that to be a jockey you have to be like really really small okay for those people listening you're not really small no no i'm 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 not really really small i'm not i'm about average um but flat jockeys and there's two different types of racing so you've got flat jockeys which is just it's like your, your, your 400 meters or whatever, you know, it's just around the track. And then you've got your jump racing, which is like the hurdles. Okay. To be a jump jockey, and a, well, to be any kind of jockey, it's all done on weight. So you could have someone that's like six foot two, but still weigh 10 stone and still be able to race. Uh, you could have, but then say on the flat, those boys weigh about seven and a half stone sometimes, like wet. So you basically, what I'm getting at is you have no water weight in you. You've got, so, you know, when you're going for like a three mile run in one direction, I remember again, I told, told you about this, this race at Doncaster where I had to lose three, um, get down to nine stone. I remember the, the day before I went for a run and I lasted, I managed to get one mile before my legs gave in. And basically there was no water going through my body. So there was the lactic acid built up and I actually had to get picked up and taken home. Yeah. Well, that's good, good commitment. I like that. Mm. Um, and just for some horror stories, please tell me about when you've fallen off and you've broken something. Just how fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. again, you know, you're talking about galloping a racehorse at upwards of maybe 40 mile an hour. Fuck. And you're jumping a hedge in front of you that is um, a minimum five foot. So you're riding a horse that is maybe, I don't know, it's done in feet, isn't it? So say 16, sorry, 16 hands high, which is, I don't know, probably about six foot. Um, and then that horse is also jumping an extra five foot. And this is how I did my neck. Um, it was a really sunny day, lovely day. We're at the track. The, 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 the ground was what you call good. 
good to firm. Basically, it was like concrete. <laughs> it was like concrete, all right. And I uh, was in the lead. We had a circuit to go, and basically two horses. We went, went over this fence. It's called the open ditch. So every every course has the biggest fence on the course, which is called an open ditch, which is called a big fucking ditch in front of it as well. Um, and we were coming up to this open ditch, big ditch, big hedge, um, and two horses come up next to me. And I'm in the middle, and basically I just get sandwiched. And they took my horse's legs out, and it wasn't something you know you kind of anticipated because I was in the you know they literally just came out of nowhere and took me out, and I just speared headfirst into the ground and uh, cracked my neck a few times, and then you've got twelve horses, so <laughs> you duck in a, into a ball. You've got twelve, thirteen, fourteen horses jumping that same hedge that you're on the other side of, um, and you're just hoping that you don't get stood on and. Uh, I remember that moment specifically when I did do the damage to my neck. Um, 12 horses came over. You kind of look under here so you can see what's going on when, it's, when they've gone past you. And I just remember leaping up because I just didn't want to be paralyzed, basically. Because, you know, I've hit the ground so solidly. I crunched my neck. 12 horses come across the top of me. And my instant reaction was, do my legs work? <laughs> Fuck me, mate! It scared the fuck out of me. Just the thought of that—it's not the. Sp I hate speed and the thought of horses jumping on me. Jesus, fucking hell, man! Well, that's uh, that's a good one. Okay, well that'll build some resilience. Okay, all right. So look, you're um you're new to the founder world. Okay, you're you're yeah, I'll call you a fresher. Yeah, you know you're you're in the space and you're doing yeah. um. Are you um have you raised any money? Yes, uh, I raised half a million uh, pre-seed. I'm currently in my seed raise at the moment. And what are you finding hardest about that? To be honest, pre-seed, and we talked about this a bit earlier, pre-seed, relatively easy because it's friends, family, network. Yeah. Yeah. People that want to give a punt and have a go. Um, pre-seed, you know, dabbling into the venture capital world and the angel investment, find it really tricky. You know, um, not only getting, well, say getting through people, pitch deck hasn't seemed to have failed yet. But just trying to find a fit that, you know, when you're talking to VCs and, and tr you're trying to find people that align with your values, really tricky. I think, you know, and then where I'm from in the Northeast, one thing from a business community perspective that we're really trying to work hard on is creating this angel investor network for these opportunities too. So I don't know if I answered your question there, but, I, you know, pre-seed seems to be all right. I think seed stage seems to be quite tricky. I think especially in the current environment with everything going on, I think, if you're asking, you know, I'm looking at about £600,000 investment to where I feel we'll be able to take it to the A level. But I think if you're asking VCs for anything less than a million, they're not really interested. But ask for anything over three million, they're pretty interested, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, one. And actually, like, so, I mean, we can talk about it, so we're blue in, blue in the face. But so um, what you're experiencing isn't, isn't unique. Um, and it's something that a lot of people go through. Um, one piece of advice that I would give to anyone who is raising money is remove the remove your product and your solution, and your remove that from your thoughts. Remove the story, and remember that key word, which is investment. Yeah, 
Okay. The most common mistake that people make is that they think, okay, I'm going to go and tell people about this amazing solution. I have to this amazing problem. Mm. And that's a necessity, but that's not why they're there. Yeah. I'm not, you know, investors aren't there to feel all warm and fuzzy inside and mm. try and change the world. They're there to make a return on their money. That's why it's called Definitely. an investment. And so what people need to do is they need to remember, like you are not there to tell a story about your product. You are there to tell me a story about how you're going to take my money yeah. and make it much bigger. Yeah tenfold it and that's a mistake and the problem you have is that when you start speaking to vcs is if you start talking about and it depends on the vc but if you're talking about like 600k yeah that might make the vc feel like that's not very ambitious Mm. it's not great it doesn't want to be very big it must be quite big which is fine for you that's Mm. great i mean yeah you come away with you can sell a hundred million pound business and you'll be living the dream for the rest of your life yeah yeah you know and there's but that doesn't that's not how it works for a vc for yeah. them to make their return you need to be selling that for a billion pounds yeah and so if you go and speak to a vc and say like i'm only raising 600 it's not that you don't it's not like it's not a lot of money mm. but for them that's unambitious yeah i definitely have circled around to this now i think also just talking about where founders go wrong and you know i think every founder's probably uh suffered this when you start your you know your 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 journey down the financing route to to get investment or whatever it is founders are often probably the worst people to pitch it because they're so close to it they've lived breathed it sweat it bled it you know until until mm. they've got nothing left in them right and um i think that's something that i did at the very beginning and luckily i had some really good advice around me and and, and i do i've got a hell of a team really great advice around me um and we really ironed it out but i think as a as a, as a as a founder, again, that, that's probably the, the biggest thing is that you can just be too close to the company. You need to take yourself out of it sometimes and, and reflect and, like you say, come at it from a factual perspective. These investors aren't bothered about too much on the story. I mean, granted, they like a good story, but it's all, it's all finance. It's all, this is the data and this is what we're going to do with your investment, isn't it? I agree with you. And look, there are exceptions out there. Yeah, we have mm. a really great guy come on the show from uh, Praetora. Um, and um, they're different. They're northern, actually. So yeah, they're same mindset. They'll be able to understand me then. Yeah, yeah they probably yeah. No language barrier there. Yeah, we yeah. are putting subtitles on this show. <laughs> um, but the so look, I've got three more questions for you. So okay, so uh, three questions for you, really quick ones. What do you hate about the founderverse about startups, and you wish it would fuck off? What do I hate? I love it. I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Like I love it. I just love it um, in the sense of even these moments, you know, a lot of people struggle with the loneliness, but actually, yes, sometimes that gets me down a little bit, but actually I, I excel quite well when I'm just boxed in doing what I need to do. Um, We're very different. Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, the um, next question, what is, if you were to go back to yourself and you sat there, you're injured, you're, you're on your sofa, your legs don't work like they used to before and you, you can't be swept off of your feet. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> what what advice would you give to yourself just do it just keep going keep kicking on as they would say in the racing world just uh um thinking back the thing is i just keep trying harder and harder and harder um but the thing is i, I am that way on like i 110 you get how i said the racing world is like 110 percent in every direction like that is me as well like that's me through and through so i just do everything 110 and if I was to go back, I'd just say keep that up because it's it's going to do you, it's going to show value down the line. And I think another thing is, um, you know, don't expect immediate immediate things to happen. 
so much in a founder, uh, in, a, in a starting a company. You do so much at the beginning that doesn't show any mo uh, monetary value. Uh, you know, it doesn't make any return, but so much of that is like goodwill and it's building that network and you, you, you know, you've got to go through that slog, I, I think. And uh, just, just, you know, if I was to go back, just, you know, persist it. Mate, I love it. I think you're great. And I think you've made a really cool product. I think what you're doing is brilliant. I think that your mindset's great. And look, I wish you the best of luck. And thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Thank you.